Is this how time normally passes? Really slowly in the right order. Wow. <laughs> Makes me feel old. Time is a flat circle. One of my favourite lines was, uh, biting's excellent. It's like kissing, only there's a winner. This podcast was recorded remotely and contains adult themes and language. Hello and welcome to TV DNA, our University Challenge episode on the 11th Doctor, Mr. Matt Smith. My name is Adam Hennig and joining me is the ever youthful Neil Shepek. You call me sexy in private. <laughs> I do, but only in private. <laughs> I mentioned youthful because this is the youngest Doctor Who. In fact, he's younger than certainly me and I expect you. Yeah, yeah, definitely younger than me. I remember seeing him in the History Boys at the National, um, and that must have been pretty much straight after he came out of drama school, and I'd been out of drama school for a while. Yeah, I didn't really see much of Matt Smith until House of the Dragon. I haven't watched his series in The Crown, and I hadn't watched any of these Doctor Who episodes up until now. Obviously, I was aware of him, but it's been fascinating to see his take on the Doctor. Yeah, absolutely. I... I do think, even though he's younger than Tennant, that he's definitely picked up the baton from Tennant in that he is empathetic towards all races, all all aliens and humans and and all of that. I I feel he's very understanding. He's also got that kind of quirky energy that Tennant has, but he's not a copy. He's made it very much his own. One of the episodes I rewatched, he was finishing off some custard and one of his things, um, and it's not in any of the episodes that we've chosen, is he likes fish fingers and custard. And, you know, it's, it's a bit like the jelly bean babies with Tom Baker. It's it's that kind of quirkiness. Yeah, I, I quite liked the development of the Doctor. And I think we, we'll talk about this as we come on to some of the episodes we've watched, but my first impressions were that he was quite childlike. I mean, he has a poshness to him, which I think is just inherently in Matt Smith. But the curiosity that he approached things was quite quite childlike for me and slightly deranged in places. But uh, <laughs> yeah, and I, I wonder whether that is partly to do with what the Doctor has been through and therefore is almost like a defence mechanism of him being in his next incarnation, having this sort of childlike innocence in a way. But yeah, we, we've I've watched sort of three cracking episodes. I uh, really I did thoroughly enjoy them. The first one I watched was The Doctor's Wife, which features Saran Jones as the TARDIS incarnated. I thought that was awesome. And it also there's other things in this episode, other lines that, that kind of really stood out to me. But the fact that the TARDIS is a woman made so much sense. And Firstly, the TARDIS is always referred to as her in the feminine. And, okay, in Spanish and French and other languages, you know, they have masculine and feminine for for different nouns. But in English, there's very few, but one is a ship. We always refer to a ship as a her. So it made absolute sense for the TARDIS to be referred to as a her. But then to see her as a her... And then to see that relationship and the fact that the TARDIS said to the Doctor, you always call me sexy in private, 
you know, there's a relationship there. And to be honest, for someone who is so lonely, and this also comes up in the Vincent episode, for someone who's so lonely and an individual who has companions, that's how they refer to them, never referred to as friends or relationships, his only real long-term relationship is with the TARDIS. Yeah, absolutely. One of my favourite lines was, uh, biting's excellent, it's like kissing, only there's a winner. Yeah, yeah. (laughs) But yeah, the, the central story of this episode revolves around a sentient asteroid in a bubble universe that lures Time Lords and destroys TARDISes. It removes the Matrix and places it in a... I've written human body, but in a in a sort of a being humanoid, if you yeah. like. It's such a, a Doctor Who premise, right? <laughs> like, yeah, absolutely. Um, and also what an amazing way of exploring the character of the Doctor. Yeah, the whole concept I thought was was brilliant, really, really clever. You've got Michael Sheen as the voice of House, which is the um sentient asteroid, if you like. But we've also got in this episode Karen Gillan and Arthur Darville as Amy and Rory. It's been quite a while since I've seen two companions with the Doctor, but I, I'm a huge, huge fan of Karen Giller. I think she's fantastic. And you can kind of see already in her performance here some of the physicality of Nebula from the MCU. Yeah. <laughs> um, just in the way that she walks. It's Yeah, it's, it's fascinating. It is. It, it is brilliant. And the whole storyline of Amy and Rory, they are very much more than just companions to the Doctor. They're entwined with that part of that generation of the of the Doctor. Yeah, there's a lovely, lovely sequence where Amy and Rory are back in the TARDIS, but time is sort of shifting for them. So there's moments where Rory becomes very old and he's been mm-hmm. there for a long period of time. Uh, I thought all of that stuff was really well done. I enjoyed all of that. And I also enjoyed, they have to get into the into one of the control rooms. Oh, that's a big difference with the TARDIS. I, I think I picked this up properly, but they're able to delete and create rooms within the TARDIS or archive yeah. rooms within the TARDIS. So in order to use power for different things, they have to archive different rooms in there, which I thought was interesting. But the bit that I really loved was the telepathic keys that they had to use to, to open the door. Again, I thought the writing in this, from a sci-fi point of view, was, was just stunning. Neil Gaiman, well, he directed. Neil Gaiman directed it. I, I, I don't know if he wrote it or not. Maybe he did. I'm not sure. But Neil, Neil Gaiman's got on to do amazing work, and it's a shame that he's not involved with the Doctor Who franchise more. It had that darkness to it in, in places yeah. as well, which I really enjoyed. But yeah, and then the Doctor essentially saves the day by gaslighting House, <laughs> which was very clever. But it means that. The TARDIS or the Sir Anne Jones's character can no longer exist in, in human form. And she's been looking for this big and complicated word that's sad. Uh, and we, we eventually learned that that word was alive. There's, there's almost a little bit of Pinocchio in, in this. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. There, that, that's reminding me of another thing that she says in that she stole a Time Lord to discover the universe. In the same way that he, the Doctor, stole her, and I thought that was that was a really great um, insight. Yeah, it's lovely the idea of the TARDIS choosing him rather than him choosing her. Yeah, I thought that was a really lovely twist as well. It's a beautiful episode, I think. The Doctor's Wife definitely highly recommended. I think Siran Jones is phenomenal in it. For, for me, as an introduction to Matt Smith, 
it was it was perfect. It, it is a fantastic episode, and not only do you find out so much about the Doctor and the TARDIS. I mean, they're pretty much a couple, and this episode proves that or works on that. There was a couple of things that I hadn't picked up when I first watched it, but this time I did. The first one is very early on, he's talking about messages from Time Lords, and he refers to something he hears or or to a Time Lord as him, and then says, or herself in a few regenerations. And obviously, we then get Jodie Whittaker. So that little seed was planted right back then. So that was clearly on, um, I think, Stephen Moffat, who's the showrunner at this point, very much in their head. And then another one, I'm guessing you've not followed the River Song storyline. I haven't yet, no. Well, spoilers, sweetie. Those who are listening, and I won't go further into it, but also... It's the line, I think it was the TARDIS who said it, is the only water in the forest is the river. And for those who have followed the River Song storyline, the fact that that happened then, it just shows how clever showrunner Moffat is. I did, uh, when, when I heard that line, I did think, oh, I wonder if that's a River Song reference. Yeah. So, yeah. Yeah. Should, we, should we talk a bit about Vincent and the Doctor? Uh, this sees Tony Curran, another great guest star, playing Vincent Van Gogh, and I can't remember. They, well, they they spot a creature in a in a painting in a Van Gogh painting. They spot a creature in a window of a church. The Doctor and Amy travel back in time, and Vincent's going through a sort of fairly tough period. It's a few months, I think, before he before he kills himself. And essentially, this is a kind of creature feature episode in that they are trying to find this creature. And then and then and deal with it. And obviously, it's kind of not a simple case of destroying it. It's it's more about sort of understanding the creature and why it's there. It was a very very cool. I can't remember what it was called, but it was a very very cool creature. The creature's invisible mostly. He can see it through a mirror. Um, well, Doctor Camber Vincent can see the creature. He has to. So the Doctor uses something like a Christmas present he was once given by a smelly, disgusting aunt that you didn't like. And it's basically like a side mirror, like in the car. But through it, he he can see the creature, but only through that. And, I, and that's why kind of everyone thinks Vincent's mad, because he's he can see this thing and nobody else can, which is a lovely, a lovely touch. And this thing that is killing people, which is why the town has got a very anxious energy, because there are deaths of young people. And we eventually find out bit by bit, but the, the creature is blind. So it has extremely good hearing, but it... It doesn't eat its prey. It, it just kills to get them out of the way. It, it's, it, it can't see them to then be able to eat them. And the species normally goes around in herds. And this individual had been ousted by the species, probably because it was weak, because it was blind and therefore wasn't, you know, wasn't good for the pack. And that was another thing that really came into my mind was that this creature was lonely. It was 
rejected by its community or its race or however you want to put it. And that was reflected in Vincent within the village. He was also very lonely and rejected. And so is the doctor in many ways. In fact, the doctor even says, I'm also lonely. And he's kind of rejected from his race, but he's also kind of walked away from the Time Lords. And he has these companions, but they only last a couple of series, if that. So, yeah, I just thought that just those three individuals in that episode again a real development of the doctor as uh, as a character yeah yeah it was lovely stuff there's a little bit of flirtation or romance between amy and, and vincent <laughs> as well which was was quite nice and they are sort of not posturing but a, a little bit of competition between vincent and the doctor in that regard which was nice they try and change things for vincent and they think that there's that that's going to change things in the future and then when they get back to their kind of present or certainly amy's present timeline and they go back to the, the gallery. They, you know, nothing has changed. The, the paintings are still the same. And apart from the creature not being in the window anymore. Yeah. And it's kind of this existential question of, you know, does anything that we do matter to anyone? Is any of it, yeah. of it kind of important? And obviously, for, well, they take Vincent, don't they? They take him to see his work because he was never popular or known sort of in his lifetime. It was only after his death that his value as an artist was recognised. So they do this sort of service for him before taking him back. And they think that that's going to help him. But ultimately, it doesn't. He still commits suicide. And I, I guess for that time, for him to know that he was appreciated is is the sort of good thing that they have done. But they, they sort of say at the end that the, the good things and the bad things balance, have a, have a tendency to balance out. Yeah, absolutely. And the Doctor was very aware that if he put Vincent in further danger, and therefore he died earlier than he did in his natural timeline, the the world would miss out on a whole load of art. And I loved Amy gifting him a whole load of sunflowers, um, <laughs> one of his most famous paintings, and then him saying, uh, but I don't necessarily like sunflowers. I find them they're, they're always either growing or dying they're always in that middle bit and again I mean amazing writing it was a great hook for a lot of what they wanted to do I mean it's always great when the doctor goes back and visits historical figures Um, I mean that's always fun you know we've had Churchill quite often and Queen Elizabeth I quite often and there are lots of different historical figures I love Bill Nye's I guess cameo as the museum tour guide and it also allowed for a big you know we talk about Tom Baker's scarf Matt Smith saying bow ties are cool I mean that was his thing that was his Tom Baker scarf was was the bow tie so that that was really lovely and and that comes up in and also the fez and that comes up oh no 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 that's the day of the doctor anyway the other thing I really liked about this is when they were waiting for the creature to appear and Vincent was painting the church amazing line is where the doctor's there really bored waiting and he says, is this how time normally passes? Really slowly, in the right order. <laughs> and that really summarised the Doctor in many ways. I just thought it was, it was a fantastic line. 
Yeah, there were definite brushes with comedy in this episode, if you'll pardon the pun. <laughs> yeah, it was it was good. I, I enjoyed it a lot. The other note that I made about Vincent being able to see the monster and no one else could is there's a point where he says to Amy, are you sad? And she says, no, no, I'm fine. And he says, "What? then why are you crying? And she reaches up to just below her eye, and there isn't anything there. But Vincent could see the tears in the way that he could see the monster, and nobody else could. It was really subtle and really small. But I again, I thought that was a really good um, piece of writing. Right, well, the third episode we watched um, was Day of the Doctor, and this was the 50th anniversary yeah. and was pretty incredible, I thought. it's. I mean, it, it kicks off, well, we're introduced to Jenna, well, I'm introduced anyway. Jenna Coleman obviously has met the Doctor previously. Um, the Impossible Girl. She's the Impossible Girl, is she? That's how she first gets introduced. Right. You've got all this to come, Adam. Spoilers. Is she more of a love interest? No, I wouldn't say. No, no, I wouldn't say that. She she gets introduced in a slightly different way earlier on to that. And yeah, it, she is referred to as the impossible girl in this episode. That is um, something that's said, but that will make sense once you watch the first episode she's in. Well, she gets an invite from the Doctor and off she goes. And then they get lifted up in a, in a helicopter. <laughs> over London to Trafalgar Square because units have summoned them. Kate Lethbridge-Stewart's uh, summoned them from Unit because there are sealed orders from Queen Elizabeth I. And it's, it's kind of all about this sort of 3D oil painting, which is called The Fall of Gallifrey or No More. And at the same time, we have uh, David Tennant in the Elizabeth I timeline. And he's he's clearly developed some relationship with Queen Liz. But they get married. Yeah, <laughs> they get married at the end of the episode. Um, the famous Virgin Queen. Yeah. <laughs> and then as well as all of this, you've got John Hurt as this mysterious other doctor who is dealing with the moment, which is a weapon of mass destruction, which has a consciousness in the form of Billy Piper. <laughs> Rose, who is a, a major character, certainly in the Tenant era, and that's how the Doctor, I guess, envisaged her. Um, there's also references to Bad Wolf. So, yeah, no, I mean, it was fantastic having Billy Piper back again. I mean, there was tons of different people back then. I mean, every Doctor in some way, shape or form came back in this episode. The way I've just described it makes it sound quite head-scratchy. And, and when you're watching it, you're kind of sort of in it and and it all kind of flows and follows and and makes sense but ultimately they will meet um but let before we get to that can, tell me about john hurt is this is this the first time we've seen him as the doctor or have there been earlier david tennant seems to recognize him i don't think so i think well no the end okay so that was a special a 50th anniversary special and the end of the previous series we got like a tease of him. Okay. But, but I, I, I'm pretty sure not with anyone interacting with him, we just got a tease of this version of the Doctor, which is now 
commonly referred to as the war doctor. So not the 12th doctor or the 13th doctor or 14th doctor, but he's referred to as the, as the war doctor. And I'm pretty sure he comes in... Paul McGann either turns into the John Hurt war doctor or the war doctor turns into Paul McGann. I can't remember off the top of my head. Paul McGann turning we we see Sylvester McCoy turn into Paul McGann in at the beginning right. of the film. So Paul McGann mm-hmm. must turn into the war doctor, the John Hurt doctor. Yeah, because we never see the transition from Paul McGann to Christopher Eccleston no. because there was the war doctor in between. So yeah. John Hurt is effectively the ninth doctor, which would make Christopher Eccleston the tenth, etc. But they haven't they don't renumber everything. He's just known as the war doctor, as you say. Um, yeah, absolutely. And he's the doctor. I mean, yeah, so you don't actually properly meet him as in get to understand anything about him until the day of the doctor, until the anniversary show. But he's basically the incarnation of the doctor that dealt with all of the challenges and struggles, but also the consequences of the great war between the Time Lords and the Daleks. And the one who made the decision to... Well, it's always... It feels initially like he made the decision to wipe out both Daleks and Time Lords and he got rid of them all. I haven't quite got my head around, but I think that was what he chose to do. And in working with... Tennant's Doctor and um, Smith's Doctor, that changes and he kind of freezes the Time Lords in a little bubble somewhere whilst destroying the Daleks. Or does he actually put both of them? Because the Daleks come back as well. So I think he basically just puts them in little, almost like Walt Disney being frozen, ready to come back to life at some point. That is what, and he has regrets he has regrets about the young people. Oh, no, that was it. The thing that's presented to him is if you kill off the Daleks and the Time Lords, thousands and thousands of children are going to die. That's why he chose to place the Time Lords in a bubble. And we then get, basically, he says, but this is going to take thousands of years to sort out you know all the logistics and the calculations and all of that and either Tennant or Smith says but we've got thousands of years and that's when you see all the other doctors and over their lifespan they're all kind of like in their spare time like after school doing all those calculations and then that is what happens Gallifrey gets frozen well the time lords get frozen and put into a little bubble so that all the kids think about the kids i i think you've you've summarized all that really well i think there's john hurt's doctor in his initial timeline destroys gallifrey and is responsible for the death of all of these children and then the the moment is this voice in his ear essentially sort of talking him through what's what's going on when he meets Tennant and smith she describes them as what you become if you destroy gallifrey so He's gone back into a point in time where he hasn't destroyed Gallifrey yet. And she describes him as the one who regrets and the one who forgets. No, 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 no. Correct me. Correct says she describes 
the man who regrets and the man who forgets. And the man who regrets is Tennant's doctor, and the man who forgets is Smith's doctor. Yeah, I think I was saying that, but <laughs> I didn't get maybe not clearly enough. It sounded like you were saying that John Hurt's doctor was the man who regrets and the man who forgets. No, no, um, no. Yeah. She was she was she was saying about those two doctors, they're what you become if you destroy Gallifrey, as in your future incarnations. And that kind of explains why this war doctor is kind of forgotten because Matt, you know, certainly by the time we get to Matt Smith's doctor, he's sort of expunged him from his memory, which you get which I thought was really interesting. And then they're all trapped in a room and they work out they've all got the same sonic screwdriver. So the calculations of the sonic screwdriver could have started 400 years ago because that's the sort of difference in age between these three doctors. So they're able to sort of escape from that room and that kind of leads them on to working out the, the thing with all, all of the doctors. So you get all of these doctors and you get footage from their original shows. So kind of found footage from their original shows, really brilliantly, cleverly done each time and then we also get a snapshot of peter capaldi who's the 13th doctor yeah just just his kind of eyes and he's like no 13 doctors yeah it was just really really fantastic i mean th- there was brilliant banter i thought between david Tennant, matt smith and and john hurt when, when he arrived with them as well but also uh yeah david Tennant's exit from the episode as you know they're saying oh we need to go and do this he's like oh i don't want to go it's a play on his sort of final line as the doctor in his run of doctor who I and mean, matt smith even comments on the fact that oh he always says that <laughs> And then ultimately, you know, we know with David Tennant, because we watched the Christmas specials from this year, last year, he does come back as the 14th Doctor and he doesn't go. He's like, I don't want to go. I want to stay here and live this life with Catherine Tate and his friends and, and that sort of thing. So that has been, yeah, nicely seeded again throughout his departures from Doctor Who at each point, I guess. Peter Capaldi, based on Time Lord lore, shouldn't happen like matt smith should be the final doctor are you aware as to why the reincarnations continued i thought it was in 13 lives that they had originally but i'm not aware no no you have mentioned in the past that it's something to do with river song yeah yeah spoilers sweetie (laughs) but yeah any other thoughts on the day of the doctor or on matt smith generally i i really enjoyed matt smith I think he really played to the audience that the the showrunner showrunners wanted for Doctor Who. It certainly brought in a, a kind of a fresh generation rather than those of us who are old enough to feel nostalgic about um the first however many doctors, seven or eight doctors up up to Colin Baker. And I think he did it really well, and he definitely put his stamp on it. Like I say, I think he inherited everything that David Tennant did, and so he still had a lot of that. And I kind of get the feeling that David Tennant and Matt Smith in a pub would have an amazing evening of banter. But he also did put from the bow tie to the fish things and custard to the raggedy man that Amy Pond regularly calls him. You know, he really did make it his own during his tenure. And I, I think he's great. At this point, obviously, it's, you know, he's the 11th person to play the role. And he's a young, a young man, you know, the youngest person to play the role. So it, is, it must be quite a sort of daunting thing to take on. But, you know, 
he's clearly very confident I think I really enjoyed seeing these episodes and again it's another doctor that I would definitely go back and watch more of yeah okay you ready for your university challenge then go on then so Matt two princes Smith given that he's played a prince in uh, House of the Dragon and the Crown uh, was born in 1982 so six years after me what sport did Spondy Spondilo I can't say this Spondilo Spondylolysis prevent Matt from pursuing? Was it football, rugby, or tennis? Well, I have no idea what bondylosis is, so I'm just going to say tennis. It was football. Uh, it's, it's a spinal st- stress fracture, um, but Matt Smith played for youth teams of Northampton Town, Knott's Forest, and Leicester City, and I think his grandfather was a, was a footballer as well, so he was very much a keen footballer. And he was actually not that interested in acting as a young man his drama teacher encouraged him by signing him up to roles without his consent (laughs) he's got a lot to thank that drama teacher for yeah but what at the third attempt was the play that he finally convinced him to make his first performance in Uh, was it a 12 angry men b murder in the cathedral or c the master and margarita well, on a Doctor Who level, I want to say the Master and Margarita. <laughs> no, it was 12 Angry Men. Uh, the latter two he did do at the National Youth Theatre. But I think there is, those are all quite apt plays for someone who plays. Yeah. <laughs> so I quite enjoyed that. He also got down to the last two for Will in The Inbetweeners, which was eventually played by Simon Bird. But he could have been in that TV show, which I think would have been interesting. I think the, the showmakers said that he was almost too dashing to be in in between us. <laughs> Sorry, Simon Bird. But he was one of the first people who auditioned for the role of the 11th Doctor, but he was not touted publicly or expected to be the 11th Doctor. So who was being touted when Matt got the role? Was it A, James Nesbitt, B, Catherine Zeta-Jones, or C, Robert Carlyle? But I would say Robert Carlyle. Uh, this is this week's trick question. It's all, all three. three yeah. <laughs> yeah. So they were considering, well, whether they were seriously considering or whether it was just public speculation, but Catherine Zeta-Jones, her name was being bandied about for, for Doctor Who. So they were there was obviously some, some people talking about a female Doctor back then. Matt's getting the role prompted the newspaper headlines, Doctor Who? Question mark. But he'd also auditioned for Watson in Sherlock, but he was considered too similar to Benedict Cumberbatch. Mm. He performed the Doctor Who theme tune at Glastonbury. <laughs> uh, I didn't write, I think it's 2010, I'm pretty sure. But who did he perform it with? Was it Orbital, Florence and the Machine, or the Pet Shop Boys? Uh, well, all, all three of those are kind of obvious. Mm, just because of the nature of... Russell T. Davis and Doctor Who. I'm gonna go Pet Shop Boys. It was Orbital, I'm afraid, Neil. Yeah, <laughs> that just seemed too obvious. Yeah. I mean, yeah, all three made sense. But yeah, yeah. They, they, they were all there in um, in 2010. So, um, but yeah, it was it was Orbital he played with. And then final question. Then Matt was cast in a Martin McDonough film, but his scene ended up on the cutting room floor. Uh, which film was it? Was it a Six Shooter? B, Seven Psychopaths, or C, In Bruges? I don't know. In Bruges? Yeah, it was In Bruges. Oh, wow, I got one point. (laughs) 
Well, we'll give you Robert Carlyle because you always get a point for the trick question. But yeah, it uh, was, okay. Yeah. But those were particularly difficult questions. They were just the most interesting facts I thought about Matt. Yeah, Smith. definitely. Um, I, I I do a quiz game with my students at school. It's called Kahoot. It's it's really good and very good for kind of English comprehension and stuff like that. Sometimes I give them a like they'll at the moment our our theme is fashion so i did one on clothes um and that was really easy what are these are they gloves mittens socks whatever but sometimes i give them a kahoot where there's probably no likelihood of them knowing the answer and it's partly to help them deal with getting things wrong and not knowing but it's also about learning and it's like wow well you know we never knew these facts that we're now finding out and that is very much particularly with this one how I see um the university challenge and that I don't care whether I win or lose or not I mean my kids would be crying if they lost kind of thing but just finding out all these facts as you say it really it's really interesting I mean all you'd need to do would be to to read the wikipedia page on the act <laughs> That's where all my facts come from. <laughs> Good tip. Okay. Peter Capaldi, that's what I'm gonna be doing. Excellent. Well, speaking of Peter Capaldi, let's have a let's have a look at some options for what we'll watch for Peter Capaldi. Again, I've I've gone online and seen some of the popular episodes for him. And the first one I'm gonna put out there is series eight, episode four, which is called Listen. What will the doctor find at the end of the universe? Listen. What scares the Doctor? Ghosts of the past and future crowd into the lives of the Doctor and Clara, a terrified caretaker in a children's home, the last man standing in the universe, and a little boy who doesn't want to join the army. Listen, that's the first one I've got for you. I haven't. I think I remember that episode. I've watched. I've watched all of Capaldi's tenure. If it's the one I'm thinking of, then it is a really good and quite dark, sinister episode. Okay. Well, the next option for you then is Heaven Sent. Uh, And this one goes, Trapped in a world unlike any other he has seen, the Doctor faces the greatest challenge of his many lives. One final test, and he must face it alone. Pursued by the fearsome creature known only as the Veil, he must attempt the impossible. If he makes it through, Gallifrey is waiting. Ooh. That's Series 9, Episode 11. Based on that description, I don't remember it i would have seen it suggests to me that it's not memorable but that that description sounds really interesting okay well the last option then for you is a two a double header so it's um two episodes and it's world enough in time and the doctor falls and i'll give you just the synopsis for world enough in time which sets that two episode thing up A huge spaceship trapped in the gravity well of a black hole, teeming with impossible life forms, harbours one of the Doctor's most feared enemies, Mondasian Cybermen. Those episodes are the end of Peter Capaldi's run. There's there's one more special, I think, at the end of that, but that's uh, season 10, episodes 11 and 12. Well, I, I absolutely look forward to watching them. Again, the description sounds really exciting but it doesn't bring any memories to mind. So, yeah, I'll really look forward to re-watching them. There's one that's just caught my eye as I'm looking through them. Is is Robot of Sherwood. 
<laughs> I do remember that with Robin Hood. Yeah. Was that a good episode? Fun. Yeah. <laughs> well, that's just before the listen episode, so I might do that as a double header as well. Yeah. Right. So we'll we'll dip into those again. I we we seem to be watching more more than one of the uh, the new. <laughs> Doctors, which is grand and I'm more than up for. So maybe we'll watch all of those that we just talked about and, and see what happens. Yeah, yeah, and absolutely. And you know, for listeners as well, if you haven't, I, I, I think firstly, if you haven't watched the various doctor that we're discussing in each podcast, particularly tenant, well, all of them to be honest, do watch more because you know if, if you like it you absolutely should there's that's why I've, I've watched many and, and Adam as well but also I think it's nice for those listeners who have watched every episode and are probably greater fans than either of us for us to cover more than one episode yeah, definitely agree. I think what I'm going to do when it comes to Christmas time is is maybe watch save all of the the Christmas specials <laughs> a massive Christmas Doctor Who marathon. That's got me maybe as as much as ten percent excited for Christmas, just like Grace Chapman. <laughs> but yeah, lovely stuff. So uh, if you are a fan of Peter Capaldi, you can also highly recommend Criminal Record, uh, which is just now finished on Apple TV Plus. So the entire series of that is available for people to watch and he is brilliant in that show so i'm very much excited to see what he does with doctor who have you seen any of peter capaldi's doctor who? no i haven't I'd, I'd seen so little of the new who stuff at all i've seen one jodie whittaker episode and and maybe one david tennant episode and that was it it's it's all brand new for me which is very exciting cool well we'll talk about peter in our next recording we will indeed if you want to let us know what you think think of either matt smith or peter capaldi you can do so on the social media at tvdnapod or you can email tvdnapod at gmail.com we've now finished our true detective night country specials but if you haven't checked those out you can do and we'll be back with regular spoiler free watch list episodes talking about the latest and greatest tv shows and then our, in fact our next watch list episode will be celebrating three years of tvdna wow it makes me feel old. <laughs> Time is a flat circle. Um, <laughs> <laughs> thanks, Neil, as ever. I uh, look forward to chatting to you again soon. Goodbye. Oh,